What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a wonderful week so far. So this week on the podcast is a special one. Victor Calderon, I don't really need to give him much introduction. I'm pretty sure you do know who he is. If not, you're going to find out all about him. Um, New York DJ legend has been in the game since the 90s. Um, Amazing DJ. A very, very nice guy as well. Um, I love this podcast. So without further ado, Victor Calderon. Victor Calderon. What's going on, man? Hey, hey, hey. hey. <laughs> How's things? Things are great. Things yeah. are really good. Yeah, um, back in Brooklyn on a gloomy day. It's been raining here all morning. Um, but things are good. Yeah. I, f- I feel yeah. like I feel like Brooklyn is best when it's gloomy, if I'm honest. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but like there's like the, the type like spring and fall for me in new york itself is like the best time of the year i love it i love it i mean i enjoy the summer but yeah there's just a a feeling in the air just different vibes you can wear different clothes you can break out that coat or you know a hoodie or yeah exactly and you're not sweating too much on the subway yeah (laughs) i can't deal with the heat man i can't deal with it yeah yeah how was your how was your summer anyway it was nice. I mean, you know, coming back from what we've all been, yeah. you know, going through. I guess um, uh, it, it was such a twisted year um, mm. for everyone. Um, but I had a little, you know, bit of extra fuckery in there, yeah. you know, uh, with some some personal shit that I went through. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we can we can talk about it. Um, but much better to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. The su- su- the summer um, is definitely shaping up. That's good, man. That's good. Um, I met you on my first show back. I've obviously been a fan for years and kind of followed you as an artist and kind of knew one of the, like, you're like one of the very first guys or like one of the leading people from New York area that has just been in the scene for God knows how many years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it's always been like amazing to see you just be still so part of the scene for so many years. Um, I wanted to like get into like, I think I'm really interested about it, but also I'm sure everybody that's listening is really interested in what it was like when you first started um, back in the day. And when was that? Oh man, you're going to, we're going to go back to the eighties. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To tap into that. Um, I mean, I, I first started, uh, as a teenager, um, mm. my older brother, uh, was a DJ. Yeah. So growing up and we shared a bedroom, um, you know, growing we grew up in Brooklyn in, uh, uh Bensonhurst, uh, Brooklyn, Italian neighborhood. Um, and yeah, we shared a bedroom and, you know, I'll never forget the day that like he, he carried in a, a crate of records and two turntables on top you know, and set, set up this setup in, in, in our room. And I was like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and then I would just like sit there and listen to him DJ, you know? And then of course I, I got into it. He yeah. taught me how to DJ and, and then it became all about collecting vinyl. He would take me into the city with him. We'd jump on the train and, and go to all the record shops, downtown record, vinyl mm. mania. Um, and that became an obsession for me, just like, you know, collecting vinyl. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I initially was introduced into DJing, into the DJing world. 
And then he took me to my first nightclub, uh, which is the Fun House. Mm. Um, and John mm. Jellybean Benitez was the DJ at the Amazing. time. And I, I was a teenager. I, I definitely was way too young to be yeah. in there. But my brother somehow got me in there and I was hooked. You know, my, my world was changed yeah. at that very moment. And I was there every weekend religiously and, yeah, in front of the DJ booth, like literally right there, just staring up at him, you know, as we see kids now, you know, like inspired, you know, and that essentially is, is, you know, my intro into, you know, underground dance music. Um, So it started when I was a teenager. What was it like though in the eighties in New York as a teenager growing up? Because I only know New York as today. I've been going to New York for 10 years and obviously it's very different to what it was then. Um, right. What was it like being a kid raving? Oh man, it was magical. Yeah. It really was. You know, it was, it was just, the venues were just everywhere and like incredible venues. Mm. I experienced, um, yeah, from the fun house to, there was a venue called The Saint, which was a, a gay members-only um, uh, nightclub yeah. that was on the east uh, east side of Manhattan um, that was literally built um, to be a nightclub. If When you have a moment, Google it, and you'll see some images. It was just a magical room. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that. There was, you know, obviously the, the original sound factory, the tunnel, uh, limelight, palladium, um, there's just all these venues. So you can literally in one weekend, one night, um, just hop around to all these different, uh, massive mega clubs yeah. that, that were all packed. Um, and that was just such an inspiring time, uh, you know, uh, for me musically, because, you know, I, I literally I'd sleep, I'd wake up at three, 4am and go out, yeah. you know, at that hour, that, that was the time to go out, you know, and, and I'd be out, until you know the next morning and sometimes we'd even go right to the record shops to try to find what you know, yeah, yeah. some of the tunes <laughs> we were hearing you know <laughs> um and or if we didn't go to the record shops we'd go you know into my little you know cubby and you know and, and like i had this little drum machine and keyboard and and, and just be all inspired to make something you know yeah, yeah. so it was a really inspiring time uh, musically and, and the scene was just thriving with with venues uh yeah, it was special yeah i can imagine this because it's it's very different to how it is today right um it is it, i mean it's great in its own way totally. um, but it's very different um you know it it, it wasn't so much um uh the attention forward on the DJ, uh, it, it was really, you, you, you were paying attention to, you were focusing on the DJ through what was coming through the speakers, yeah. you know, that's, and, and people were just dancing, you know, not facing, mm. you know, the DJ. Was it, was it more so, was it more so back then that producers were producers and DJs with DJs or was it a bit of both? With a bit DJs, of both. Yeah, both. a bit of both because a lot of the music that was coming out of New York were, you know, club kids like myself yeah. that were literally on the dance floor, you know, getting inspired, mm. you know, through who, you know, whoever we were listening to at that moment. So there was a New York was thriving then. Yeah, the record yeah. labels, you know, it was there was tunes coming mm. out of New York. You know, yeah. um, it was it was on the map in a big way. 
Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a bit of both. Yeah. yeah. When was the, when was your first show or where was it? Like your first show where you're like, I'm playing, this is it. Oh, well, you know, we, we would have to go back because through DJing, through getting into DJing, um, I eventually started to buy a couple of pieces of gear and become very interested in, um, in producing, you know, yeah. and making music. Um, and I'll never forget this. And you, you'll, you'll like this. My cousin, Anthony, yeah. Adrian, yeah. Um, his dad um, at the time uh, was in a band and he had his own recording studio. Mm. And I'll never forget the first time I walked into his studio yeah. and seeing all this gear and just being like, oh, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what <laughs> I want to do. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> it's the best. So I was inspired by his dad you okay. know, to start, you know, creating my own room and yeah. building my own studio. And I remember he had this Roland S550 sampler mm. at the time. Classic. And it was like Roland's first sampler. Yeah. <laughs> keyboard. And, you know, and I was just blown away by how you could literally, you know, take a piece of vinyl, sample it in and play it across the keys and, I went out and bought it immediately mm. and just literally like learned that thing inside and out. And from that moment, I just, I, I was just like, okay, I, 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 I love this. I want to know more and just dove deep yeah. into it. Um, and now we're, we're approaching the early nineties. Um, and I had a very close friend. His name was Gene LaFosse. He was also another neighborhood guy, mm -hmm. DJ, really talented. And, um, we were always like hanging, you know, talking about music, and um, we just started working together and like inform this uh, this group. It was called Program Two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we uh, and it was at the time um, in the early '90s where techno was really uh, making its way into New York in a, in a really big way. Yeah. Limelight was 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 all techno. A lot of the venues were were, were playing techno. Um. And we got into that scene, but I'm talking about techno. We were doing like 145 beats per minute. Proper, know, proper really... techno. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, breakbeat techno, yeah. you know. And um, yeah, we and we we just, uh, we were creating all this on very underground techno. And at the time, there was Frankie Bones, mm. Joey Beltram, uh, Damon Wild. I mean, there's a lot of guys in New York that yeah. were, were producing really proper techno. And uh, we collaborated with Joey uh, on a few tracks that um, really put us on the map. Mm. Uh, one of them was The Omen. It was called The Omen. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that's when things really started to formulate and started to like, okay, like this, this something's happening here. Yeah. You know, my name got out there and, um, I started getting offered, uh, you know, just some really small random gigs and warehouses and stuff, you know, and I, it's funny because when I, once I got into producing, you know, like DJing sort of took a back seat, uh, yeah. at that time, you know, I was really focusing on, on, on creating music. Yeah. Um, but then I started getting offered these gigs and I was like, okay, yeah, you know, let's do, let's do this. Um, so I think my first like underground gig, uh, was in Toronto. Okay. I don't even remember Tor the name. What, of the what was the... Toronto used to have like a really big club years oh, ago. Oh, uh, Government. Government, that's it. Yeah. Did, did you ever play there? 
Yeah, yeah, numerous times. What was yeah, it like? Because like, I heard so many amazing stories and I it shut down the year I started touring. So, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it was a special room because it was the first um, phase-on sound system outside uh, okay. of the U.S., yeah. you know. Um, that That's, you know, the phase-on was... was you know, really popular sound system because of the sound factory, uh, yeah. original sound factory in New York. Um, so yeah, they had this massive stack system in there and it sounded incredible. Mm. Uh, great room. Yeah. It's a shame you didn't get a chance. Yeah. To see I would have loved to have done that. Would have lo- so would you, were you, you started out in New York and then pretty quickly kind of went to more international or was it just us based? Um, yeah, I had some, you know, international, mostly U.S. based. Yeah. I mean, in my career, you know, for a good part of my career was, you know, pretty much based in the U.S. Yeah. Um, that's, that's where I think I thrived for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's really interesting, isn't it? How people can have like careers in certain markets and only stay in, for me, like the U.S. is like a, my key market. Right, um, right. and I do most of my touring in the US. Um, but it's really interesting in, in, especially nowadays where we live in such a small world Yeah, and with the internet, it's, it is amazing that you still have like people that just tour in certain, certain places. Um, what? Yeah. It's, it's surprising, you know, when, you know, I first started going it was random, so random to me to Bulgaria, you yeah. know, I, years ago um and they brought me out there because at the time you know i was i started working with a lot of commercial artists like madonna and sting mm, and all that yeah. and, and you know so they they flew me out there i didn't even know what bulgaria was <laughs> i was like bulgaria i have fans yeah. there but yeah they knew me because of all of these you know you know remixes, pop remixes yeah. that i was doing that's, that's- I, developed, I developed a really big following out there and to this day I, you know, I play one of my, uh, my favorite events, uh, throughout the year really? there in Bulgaria. Let's, um, let's talk about the, the nineties and, um, sure. remix culture because it's, it's so different to how it is now. Um, yeah. and how much influence house and techno had on the charts, um, because in the UK, house music still has a huge influence in chart music still, but it's not how yeah. it, it's not how it used to be at all. Um, what was it like doing remixes and sometimes the remixes being bigger than the the actual original? Uh, I mean, it was a great time, yeah. um, especially yeah, for my career. My career was just thriving at that time because all of the major labels were on board yeah. with the remixes were such a integral part of, uh, of a release, mm. you know, as far as mar- like it was a big marketing tool yeah. for, you know, for some of these big artists like Madonna and Sting and Beyonce. So it, it was great to see that, to see, to have that support, you know, and, and then also see, you know, even, radio supporting it uh, which is just not happening like you said now no. you know it's, it's it's a very different time um it was really inspiring uh, to have you know that attention you know on music that was underground and only played underground yeah. so um yeah <laughs> for me that was like 
a great moment. You know, I was, I was cranking them out. I was literally doing, you know, a mix in three days, you know, <laughs> because I was, I was given these deadlines. Yeah. <laughs> now I take fucking three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, was it, was it good money back then as well? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, and I know it was a big, a big part of the inspiration. <laughs> But but it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. You know, when, when you had artists that were really involved in the process, uh, not all of them were. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but, but some of them were. And I always say, like, for me, the highlight of my career was when I worked with Sting. Wow. Um, because he was really interested in, uh, in every step of the way of the process of, of the whole remix of, of, his, of mm. his music. Yeah. Um, and to the point where he called me up and he was like, Vic, um, I love what you did. Uh, but I like, okay, well, he's like, I want to re-record the vocals because I had time stretched his vocals. Uh, okay, but I, that was the best thing for me to hear. I was yeah. like, yes, let's do it. He's like, okay, just send me a location, studio time, and uh, I'll be there. No way. What was that like? <sighs> incredible, Incre- just an incredible moment to be sitting next to a man that I had like literally grown up listening yeah. to his music, the police was, you know, just, yeah, it, it was on a whole nother level for me having him by my side behind a console saying, okay. And he showed up and just like, okay, if this was, um, the desert rose remix that I did for him, okay. um, he had shown up and he was just like, okay, this is your session. Tell me what you want, you know? And I was just like, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> okay, I, need, I need to fucking deliver. <laughs> oh man, um, that's special. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was an amazing time. Um, it, I, I booked the uh, Hit Factory in New York mm, City, uh, yeah. which is an incredible room. And um, he went into the vocal booth and just literally, like, from start to finish, nailed it. Like really? one take. No way. I, I wanted to be able to say, oh, can we go in there and like, you know, redo that? But I was just like, I just fucking nailed it. <laughs> I can't even critique it, you know? I was like, okay, like, let's maybe add some ad libs, you know? Let's like, I, yeah, I was just blown away of like how spot on his voice was and how, like, how he was just able to deliver that effortlessly, you know? It was, it's it was, uh, that. They they were true artists, weren't they? Then they were, yeah. they were true, really. Yeah. Like I think the difference now is like what you said is that then sometimes the artists were involved in it. Now it's just a A and R of a of a label that's asking you to do it, and half the time the art the original artists don't even hear the remixes. Yeah. It's, it's not. Yeah, even I mean there, there were many moments like that. Like mm. I, I did quite a few remixes for Beyonce, but yeah. it was never involved. Yeah. I only de- dealt with the record label or her managers. Mm. Uh, it's a bit so sad yeah, when I it's, that. I find it is, it's a bit sad when it's like that because I think it's, it just, it, that's when it turns into a business, right? And obviously we're going to, we're going to do it because we're getting paid pretty good money to right. do something that we wouldn't usually get paid that much money to do like usually if we're doing a right. remix we're doing it for a mate and we're not getting paid for it um right, right. whereas it's some creative excitement you know that that, that is driving you yeah because i i remember i did a, a rihanna remix and um it was like i did like a rihanna and you too and they were both different experiences but the Rihanna one, I was just like, I just know that she's just not going to ever hear this. And like, it's kind of like, although it's great to, to say that 
I've done one, but it's like it doesn't right. really. Yeah, yeah. If, if it, that's when you just take it and like flip it on its fucking side and make it your own, exactly. you know? <laughs> <laughs> or send her a version that would make them happy, and then you know make your own thing out of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's interesting, you know, that we're talking about this because um, when I was working with Madonna, she really pushed me, mm, really pushed me love that. to like. You know, to the point where I, I would deliver a mix and she would call me and say, it's good, but I didn't think, and, and I was, I'm feeling so good about it. Like, oh, fuck, this, this is solid, you know, like, she's going to love this. And she would call me, she's like, I think you could change this. I think you could change this. And she, I was like, really? And, you know, like, not to her, I was yeah. saying to myself, oh, I don't necessarily agree with what she's saying. Mm. But then once I went back in there, um, and made those changes, it, it just elevated the mix to and, and took it somewhere else that yeah. I hadn't originally thought about. So yeah, there's that creative um, flow that, you know, if the, the artist is not involved, that, that you would just like listen, literally, you know, yeah. miss out on. I, I think also with Madonna as well, correct me if I'm wrong, but her music, especially those days, was very much dance floor focused. Oh, like. Yeah. It yeah. was like proper disco club records to a certain extent. Yeah. And yeah. if you would want to play those records in your sets, if you had a version oh, yeah. for yourself, sure. right? Because yeah. you know it's going to have a reaction that no one else has this remix before you have it. Like right. people know the re the original record and it's a special moment when you've got something like that. And it, yeah. it makes sense for her to want, them to be big i'm pretty sure like some of her records got big because of the clubs oh for sure yes absolutely i mean there were elements there that really already lent themselves as mm. you said you know there were there are dance records you know yeah from the start um so yeah I, I would receive all these stems and there was just so much that was like excited excited about okay yeah, i can take this and i can use yeah. this and use this and but yeah the dance mix still would also just take it, you know, somewhere else where, you yeah. know, she was still focused on radio, but like, yeah, we, we would take it on the ground mm. and, you know, make it playable for, for DJs and, and my own sets. Yeah. Totally. So it was, it was exciting to have that, you know, like a new Madonna remix set was not out. I was testing everything at the time because when I was working with Donna, I had my um, residency at the Roxy mm -hmm. in New York city. Okay. Uh, and it was it was a gay Saturday night, um, and and that's that, that's when New York was just just really so special because yeah. to hear good underground dance music, mm. you had to go into the gay venues, yeah. you know. And as a straight man, you know, it was just like this was a whole another world for me. And yeah. then you know, like blowing up as a DJ in that world, it was just it was just like mind-boggling you know mm. it's it a weird dynamic you know when when but did it when did it stop when did that stop though because like i've never experienced that part of the scene um i've experienced gay clubs but i've never experienced the scene being a gay driven scene and obviously i know where it came from but when when did it stop for, for like right. especially in new york um and chicago and all of that when did that kind of end and it just kind of turn into I think around the Giuliani era, you know, the, mm. that era of when, you know, the city was, you yeah. know, on a mission to shut down all the venues. Yeah. I think that had a really negative impact on the scene. Yeah. 
and in a sense, just like, you know, did away with all these really great underground rooms. And um, mm. it continued a little bit, but I think at, at, at around then or just before then is, is when it really started to end. Yeah. Um, it's like it, it's in the 2000, early 2000s yeah. or something. Um, yeah, it, it was a really inspiring time, you know, like, have, you know, mm. to be able to play techno for, for you know, the boy you know for these gay gay audiences yeah. it's just it wasn't just about vocals you know mm. it, was, it was it was everything across the board yeah yeah i it's it's the one thing that i've always wanted to do is play in more gay clubs um but i for for me like i've like growing up without going to gay clubs because there's no there's no the only gay clubs in like my local cities are just like really commercial cheesy clubs yeah. and it's like it's almost like the it's like there's almost nothing for the cool gay people out there right. and for the people that want right. to listen to like forward <laughs> forward pushing music and it's it's kind of sad to me i don't understand i don't yeah. understand why it's kind of gone that way I don't know what happened there. Yeah. I mean, the, the best audience is a diverse audience, you know, exactly. just, it's yeah. just, it was just life, you know, and everyone was just there for music and, yeah. you know, there was no judgment it was just acceptance and mm. it was, it was beautiful. It was just really beautiful. I mean, it's look at, um, Bergheim and Panorama Bar, yeah. you know, they're still doing it. They're still, they're still experiencing that. Yeah. You know? I, I had, um, do you know Sophia Kearney and Stephen Brains? I had, they they run a a night called He She They. Oh, I don't know it. Uh, you should check it out. It's um they're based in the UK, but they they tour the the event around around the around the world. Um, and there, Stephen's a gay guy. Um, Sophia's I think I believe Sophia's straight. Um, but they also manage they, they also own the weird and wonderful management c company which they manage like okay. Maya Jane Coles and people like right. that Th I've heard of the company yeah, yeah. yeah. um so they they do this party which is like all in like it's really all inclusive so it's kind of bringing back that kind of gay yeah. by kind of scene yeah. um oh, there's buckets of it I mean even in Brooklyn yeah. you know there there are a lot of you know underground parties that are happening you know now that that mm. are that uh there's under and you know yeah, yeah there's there's a few that that, that are happening that it's they're, they're doing it <laughs> i i just wish it was just a, a bigger thing if i'm honest yeah yeah i agree that's yeah. for me it's the best audience to play for you know when, when it's just it's just open like that you just you play with such a friend, uh, sense of freedom and you know you don't question anything that you're playing because they're yeah. just they're there for the journey you know I want to talk about residencies um, because there was like 90s, early 2000s, residencies were like a thing. And then right. I feel like they've kind of fizzled out now and it's not a thing at all. Um, right. What was it? What can you explain to people that, that didn't kind of understand what residencies were, what they were about and kind of how much it can actually change someone's career? Well, absolutely. And for me, my first, big residency um uh it's actually started in miami mm. um at a, a night called called liquid okay um and that was owned by chris Pacello and uh Ingrid caceres um and at the time i'm gonna, I'm gonna pedal back a minute um i had released 
I had gone through a, a hiatus in, in music. I had taken a break. Um, the whole program thing, uh, program two thing, sort mm. of, you know, we split and we stopped working together. And I wasn't even in the studio at all. I wasn't DJing. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a long story, but I, I, got, I randomly got into the restaurant business. Okay. I'm talking about in like 95. Okay. Um, and um, it's at the time is when I met, met my wife. Yeah. So, um, hadn't been working in music at that, at that point. I mean, mm. I wasn't sure what was going to be my path. I was, mm. and, I, and I was kind of really depressed about it. Like, wow. You know, I thought like this was going to you know be my, my, my future, my career. Yeah. And, um, so I'm in this restaurant, you know, I, I became the person that was literally opening and closing this restaurant. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, my partners with a friend and that's how I got, got involved in it. Um, but I wasn't doing anything in music and, uh, I, and I met my wife and she would come to the restaurant. We would sit in this booth in the corner and she would, she would always hear, she would always say to me, Vic, you're always talking about music. You know, you're always like, you're constantly bringing up music. Yeah. You're constantly bringing up, you know, production and, you know, DJing. And she's like, you're not happy here. She's like, you know, like, go back to doing what you were doing, you know, mm. like give it a, give it another shot. And it really struck with me. And I was just like, you know, you're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to give it one last shot. And I sold my share in the restaurant, went back into the studio. Um, I'll never forget uh, the night I sold my share. I was supposed to have dinner with her and we were just not, not even dating at the time. We were just friends. Yeah. And um, I was like, you know what, babe? I was like, I've been walking past my studio for a couple of years, watching it collect dust. I'm going to go back in there and try to do something. And I produced um, this track, not knowingly. Um, give, it's called "Give It Up." Okay. Uh, and it, was, it came out on Eight Ball Records. Mm -hmm. And uh, and to I made the record. It's a great record. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to my surprise, the record literally just blew up. Took off, and I had no idea at the time. I really had no idea. Um, I'll never forget. It was I went to a music conference in Miami. Um, I was like, okay, I need to get back into things and, and see what's going on in the industry um, and, and just and hear DJs and hear music. And so I went to a music conference just as the release, uh, just before the release came out. Every venue, it was just so weird. Every venue I walked into, my record was playing. And I was just like, whoa, what the fuck is going on? Through that, the reason why I get into the story, through that um, is how I landed my res my first residency in Miami at yeah. Liquid. Because um, the track uh, at the time when Billboard was charting mm. underground tracks, um, it was number one at the Billboard charts. Wow. And um, the venue owner at the time saw that and he was like, let's get this guy in here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It was just random like that, yeah. and I'll never forget. And it was he was he had it. It was a gay Sunday night that mm. they brought me out there to play, and it was just an explosive night. Yeah, and I remember just like I was that from that moment on, I was on the map, and everyone thought I was a Miami local. Everyone thought I was from Miami, but meanwhile, I was that night. Like the owner was just like, okay. I'm flying you out here weekly. I'm going to get you a place, you know, like tell me whatever it takes. I yeah. want you, I want you here every week. And he offered this residency. 
Okay, amazing. The thing that makes what's that? Amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, like, what is happening? You know, I went from sitting in this restaurant, miserable, <laughs> to like having you know launched this career like unknowingly. Mm. You know, it just like all sort of just started like snowballing. Yeah, it was just so weird that the way it was happening so fast. And uh, I was like, yeah, man, I'm I'm ready. Like, like, yeah. You know, I didn't move to Miami, but I was literally flying there every weekend to play this gay Sunday night. And how long um, were you playing for? I think were you were you all night long? All night long. Yeah. Start to finish. Yeah. Literally doors open to you know, the doors closed. And back then it was you long. That's a long it's a long it, shift. Yeah, it was long nights, you know. And I'd I'd be there at eleven PM and you know, I was out of there at eleven AM. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah it was just an exciting time and the special thing about a residency is your audience really gets to know you Mm. and you really get to know them well and you start to tease them throughout the night when you're playing these long sets and you know they're just waiting for you to drop that record you know that you played last week they're hanging on you know that moment you know and and that is the special thing about like you know really um coming together in that way you know weekly you know like you really um you just get to experience uh this journey in a, in a very different way where, you know, it's, yeah, you're like, cause back then music wasn't so accessible, you yeah. know? So, and certain DJs had certain vinyls and mm. others didn't. And like, you know, so like they were showing up every week, you know, waiting for you to, you know, to play those tracks. And um, yeah, it was just a magical time, you mm. know, like growing it in that way. Yeah, I think also it's it's very different nowadays, and I'm not saying it's worse or or better. Um, it's just very different. Right. Do you think the residency culture could come back? I don't know. You know, I I think that quite often, and mm. even for myself, because yeah. I am that type of DJ. Yeah, I am that type of DJ. I. I prefer the long sets. I prefer the journey. I prefer to be able to build my set. Mm. You know, I mean, playing a two-hour set or you know, hour and a half set um, has never been something that I, I am crazy about. I yeah. do it. You know, you could have a good set. It could be you know yeah. impactful. It could you know, be a great moment at a festival. But you you don't really get to tell a story, you know, mm. in, in that amount of time, you know, and, and even as a DJ, you know, like really settle in and, you know, find your bearings, get used to the DJ booth and, you know, like really settle in, yeah. you know? Yeah. I feel um, yeah. For me, you know, I've always preferred the, the, the residency style. I, I, maybe it's possible. I don't know. I think everything is just so fragmented right, right now. There's, and there's so many more DJs, a lot of talent out yeah. there. So venues, you know, I, I, you can't blame them for wanting to, you know, bring a lot of this talent through their venue. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the audience has just become accustomed to that mm. lately. And the idea of one guy, you know, playing every week, um, 
you know, doesn't cut, night. does it? It doesn't cut. <laughs> like, you know, like, Wait a minute, where's the lineup? Where the fuck is the lineup? Really, you're playing all night, you know? <laughs> yeah, and charging you the same amount of money because back back when it, when residencies were big and it was like less about the DJ and more about just the club night. How much did it cost to get into a club in in around those times? Uh, I mean, in the nineties, it was probably twenty dollars. Yeah. You know. Um, to, to enter into the room. I mean, it, it got way more expensive as, as time went on, but yeah, I mean, to have a, you know, 12 hour night, you know, that, that's all you had to pay. It's a know, cheap night, isn't it? Where yeah, now, it's a really cheap night. <laughs> where if you can get a $20 ticket for a big lineup, it's like, how much is a Brooklyn Mirage ticket going for something like nowadays? It's like insane amounts of money. Yeah, it's a very expensive night. Yeah. yeah. And then it's not just it's drinks on top of that. It's it's everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a very different industry now. What was uh? What was I want to I want to know about your New York residencies? Um, so interesting. That, you know, we we just went into that whole Miami thing. So even everyone from New York, because at the time I was not doing anything in New York, thought I was a, a Miami local. Mm. So I, I'll never forget. Um, uh, at the time, the Palladium was open yeah. uh, in New York City. Insane room as well. Yeah. Like another magical mega club in New York City. Um, and my wife was a bartender um, at the Palladium. And I remember being at the bar, just chatting with her. And all of these people, like, coming up to me, like, you know, and, and again, uh, it was a gay Saturday night and mm. Junior Vasquez was a DJ uh, Amazing. at the Palladium at the time. Yeah. And um, I remember like all these Queens coming up to me, like, my God, I just heard you in Miami. Like, <laughs> you, just, you just blew me away. Wow. What's your story? Where are you from? Like, like literally like I, all these people coming up to me, I'm like, I'm, I'm from New York, you know, yeah. like I'm a, I'm a New York guy and from Brooklyn. And I just remember like all this, like, hype about me you know mm-hmm. um but this miami dj um but meanwhile i was from new york but i had nothing going on in new york <laughs> um and that's when uh these two uh gay promoters at the time uh mark berkeley and uh, john blair they had a big gay saturday night which they, they were also doing uh the juniors party uh mm-hmm. at the palladium were launching um the roxy they you know they were, they, okay. were gonna, they were planning to open up the roxy and uh they through all this hype you know offered me uh the residency for the opening like yeah. the reopening the rocky the roxy had been around for uh yes. for years yeah. but it had yeah. closed and um so they were launching a new gay saturday night there mm. um and they offered me this residency, and I was like, wow, what is happening, man? <laughs> this is just crazy. Um, so that's how I, I started my first New York uh, night mm. uh, was with the Roxy and, and with those guys. And it was just a massive Saturday night, 4,000 boys, you know. The Roxy was a, an old uh, roller rink, so it was this okay. massive, yeah. you know, room. Um, and again, uh, the weekly, it was a weekly night. So I was playing New York. <laughs> and then Miami. Miami. Yeah, it was just crazy. Wow. Um, what? Yeah. It's kind of weird because, 
Yeah, the residency thing just doesn't happen now. And I know I've, I'm sound like a broken record, but I'm just like, I ca- I couldn't imagine what it would be like. Because if the Roxy was that big, like that is pretty much like playing at, at Brooklyn Mirage every weekend. Every weekend, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was happening recently in Ibiza, you know, with with Marco and Amnesia, and like you know, the, the residency thing works there. Yeah, it's the, it's, um, I, I think the th- the different thing is in, in Ibiza is that every week you have new people. It's not right. it's not the same people that go, so it's not it's not yeah. the it's not the club culture. Your right. kind of people. I, when I used to live in Ibiza we like every it was like every wednesday and saturday was changeover day so you just know that every wednesday and saturday you'd get 10 20,000 more people coming in and right. and doing it um what was your first ibiza show oh wow um i think it was amnesia yeah but it was a um Manumission night. Yeah. Okay. So you were at the manumission before Amnesia. Yes. Interesting. And the DJ booth was just over the pool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, such a. Oh no, no, setup. that that was privilege. No, that was privilege. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. It was privilege. Yes. Not Amnesia. Yeah. Um, it was a privilege. That was my first uh, first time. entry into Ibiza. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was a special night on the Island. That was like the, the night on the Island back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I remember like before, um, going there to play and checking out the night and I was like, wow, this is crazy. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, But so I this is the one thing I want to know, um, without being too nosy, um, into your like personal life and everything like that. But you've the longevity of your career is unbelievable. And there's not many people in this scene that has been around for how long you have been around for and is still very consistent. What's like, what's the, what's the kind of key to that? How, how, how did that happen? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Compliment. Um, and no, I go, I, I've always um, tried to be very aware and dialed into that, like of, of not coming stagnant and, yeah. you know, just trying to evolve in some way. And yeah. um, I remember there were moments going back to um, playing, uh, um, you know, these, these really big gay circuit parties, mm. that, you know, I, I developed this really big gay following and I was playing, a lot of circuit parties. In the end, it went from underground New York gay scene to becoming, it started transitioning into these like circuit parties, like yeah. where they were like sort of gay festivals, you mm. know? And I rem- remember getting to the point where musically I felt trapped. Mm. I, you know, I'd go shop for music and I'd buy all this really amazing techno and tribal and underground music. And then I would go to play and I felt like, it was not yeah working for me so I, and I, and I, I remember when i left the roxy um i left i literally like left the residency mm. um at one point i was just like okay i think it's time to change it up yeah 
I just, I just went through those moments personally where I felt like I'm either going to like, you know, just be this jukebox and play for this audience mm. and kill my career or I make a change yeah. and, you know, and break into something else where I'm, I'm inspired again to play, yeah. um, which was really hard for me to do because anyone, any of the straight promoters that were putting on any events had this perception of me being, oh yeah, Victor Calderon, you know, that's a, he's a gay DJ, yeah, you know, yeah. like, he's a circuit DJ. So it was really hard for me to, to break down that, you know, that perception and be like, I can play for your audience. You yeah. know, I can, I can get dirty and play some techno that I know, you know, that will light up your floor, but yeah. they weren't giving me the opportunity, you know, because they had this idea of me of like playing, you know, vocals and Madonna. And like, so it was challenging to like say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play music. I really want to play. And so I, I went through quite, a, quite a few of those moments where it's like, you know, um, reincarnations of, of my career, you know, where I think it's really important to like, you know, get to those points and, and, look at what you're doing and say, okay, am I happy? Like, you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah I can yeah. continue with this and, you know, make that paycheck. And, but is it, is it gonna, is it gonna take me to the next point of my career? Like, mm. it, it's so I was always very aware of that, like in trying to like evolve. Yeah. <laughs> Hence why I, like I started a night called evolve, you know, okay. um, in New York at the time, Crowbar was opening, yeah. which was another, like, it was like the first return of a, a mega club yeah, after yeah. Palladium had closed down, Sound Factory had closed down. What year was this? Uh, 2006 or seven, around okay. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was at that point of changing everything, mm. you know, like musically. Um, I knew I was going to lose... A, a lot of people, but I knew I was going to gain, you know, a new audience yeah. as well. So as risky as it was, you know, I, I was, I was ready to do it. I knew I needed to do it, yeah. you know, in order to like, you know, move to the next thing in my career. Mm. Um, so I launched this night called Evolve. I put out an album around it, you know, like this, this new sound, whatever, you know, yeah. a, a bit more, I was introduced because I was at the time when I was playing a lot of the, the gay venues, it's all tribal. I was yeah. playing all this tribal, you know. New York was huge for tribal as well. Yeah. There was a period yeah. when New York was like all about tribal. Yeah. Yeah. And I became known for tribal. And yeah. um, so now I was like, okay, I'm, I was digging through my collection. I was playing, I was finding all this really amazing techno, you know, that I was just literally slowing down. Yeah. Um, and I, I was infusing it into my sets more and more and more and more, you know? Um, and we, this night just took off. I was, I decided, um, I was like, you know, with working with the promoters, of course, I was like, let's do this. Let's, let's go back. Let's charge $20 to get in. Cause just before that, the, the, the prices were getting really crazy to get into the venue, hundred dollars, you know, $150. Yeah. I was like, let's go back. I want to start at 5. AM. Let's charge $20 to get in the door open door like let everyone in like i want to try to get that diverse crowd back in here again like that that was the whole concept of the night you know we're we're evolving (laughs) and 
this night just became massive for me um, mm. and it relaunched my career. Wow. You know, it just it gave me life musically. Like it just, it just started a whole nother like, decade for me, you okay. know, yeah. of, of being able to, um, you know, have something to say mm. musically. Were you uh, booking? Were time. you booking other artists for that as well, or was it just you? It was just me. Nice. I would, I would have actually. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I would have like local guys. Yeah. Um, you know, just play just before me. Yeah. Um, like they would play the slot up until uh, four a.m., yeah. four thirty a.m., and then I would go out, go on at around five a.m. and I would play until five wow. uh, in the afternoon. So it was always a twelve hour, maybe on, sometimes more on Sundays. Yes. Yeah. It was Saturdays into Sunday. So, yeah. and it was a really incredible, diverse, all inclusive mm. audience. And again, it was magic. The, the room lent itself um, for, for, for these dramatic installations we would do. You know, we would, I would bring in lighting rigs, every, you know, like I would just try to always think, like, okay, let's do something really special, yeah. you know. So, it was that kind of energy and excitement you know, uh, around the night and it just really took off and it became, um, a, a really big night for me in New York. And then also like, I think started to change that perception, um, for me in, mm. in, in some territories, you know, yeah. as far as me breaking into playing, um, for some of these straight venues and, and, and events. Mm. So, so going back to what you, you were saying, it's like, yeah, just, I always would come to those moments of, of like, okay, I, I need to change it up. I need yeah. to do something here that is going to get me, you know, to the next point of my career and, you know, have some longevity. It's always super important to, to keep your, I, I, I kind of sometimes look at it as keeping yourself happy. And sometimes you got to do the most weird things that everyone from the outside is like, what the fuck is he doing? Right. Um, but it makes so much more sense in your head and it, it takes time for you to kind of <clears throat> communicate that to other people. But right. once it's communicated, it, it makes sense to everybody. And as long as the story's told correctly, it, right. it it's 100% the best thing you could possibly do. Absolutely. If you, if you really believe in what, you know, you're, you're doing and you stand behind it, mm. it just, it'll be so rewarding yeah. you know, to you in the end because it, it will pay off. You know, yeah. you, you, if, you, if you know you have something really strong to say, pe- people will listen and musically that they'll, they'll be all ears and, and, and follow you. Yeah, totally, man. Do you think you could do that again in New York? Do you think, or do you think the times have changed too much? Um, no, I, th- I think it's possible. Okay. I think it's possible. And I'm always like, you know, my, my radar is always <laughs> spinning. Like, like, okay, what's happening here? What room is opening? What, you know, like, you, you know, I hear about like, you know, mm. new rooms or, you know, and then it has to be right. But, you know, there are so many layers. There are so many components yeah. um, that I think need to be in place in order for that to happen again. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the rooms that have been opening recently sort of missed the mark. You know, they're, they're built um, for the wrong reason. You yeah. know, they're not built in that way. Uh, I have this reference, you know, a, a, for me, the best room in New York City um, was the original Sound Factory. Okay. 
I, I mean, there are other really magical rooms, but sonically, um, this room was just perfection, mm. you know, and you heard music the way it was meant to be heard. Yeah. And, you know, and it wasn't over the top. Um, it wasn't this like sensory overload. Um, yes, they had a really cool lighting uh, rig, but you just were there and you could not help but to be drawn in and lose yourself yeah. in the music, you know? So for me, that's my reference, you know, like, and I think these kids that are experiencing the um, festival culture can enjoy that. No. You know, they can walk into the room in the same way I did and be like, whoa, what the fuck mm. is this? This is something else. Yeah. This is something I have not experienced, you know. But like I said, it needs to have everything in line, you know, and aligned, you know, in order for that to happen you yeah. know like the, the room needs to be built with that intention mm. you know so would, would you ever open your own i've considered it so many times <laughs> I, I somehow talk myself out of it you know like there's a lot of baggage that comes with yeah, my clubs unfortunately huge, yeah. you know and um but i feel like uh, there's this part of me that uh, like wants to say something in that way and mm. maybe that maybe that would be my last uh last hurrah, hurrah. You know, like, <laughs> build this fucking room you know launch a new residency and you know just yeah and just create a new magical moment but it's it's easier said than done oh, it's so now, much easier said than done it's so much it's, it's, it's so expensive to, to, to that's impossible to do that now yeah. you know in new york especially in the city and yeah. the big big reason why a lot of the venues moved into the boroughs like brooklyn uh was because it was just financially just did not make sense it's yeah. impossible to survive um you know the rents and, and the cost of, of doing that you know you couldn't take a risk no. you know spending you know 20 million dollars to build a room it just there's, there's no way you ever recoup that no no um, that's not that's not what it's about. That's not how it started. It wasn't no. it, clubs were never built to be made as huge money makers, although we all know they make a shit ton of money. Um right. but if done badly they can or even not if they're done badly, if it's just not if the business doesn't align, it's there's a lot of money to be lost as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's why, you know, the rooms are built with a different intention now. I can, I walk into some rooms and I can like, it's a weird thing like that I have. I'm just like, oh man, that light is too bright. That mm. The sound needs to be this. I just like, you know, just critique it as I'm walking in to go and play. And I'm like, yeah. oh God, you know, and I'm like literally talking to the light guy. I'm talking to this guy, like, you know, mm. you know, shut that door. There's a bright light coming in from there, you know, like put a curtain over it, you know, like just, there are all these things that, you know, are intrusive into the experience that, mm. and, you know, in order to have that, you know, that immersive lose yourself uh, type of room, those things need to be right. Starting yeah. with sound system, you know, like that's such an important integral part. You got a fucking dope sound system. You have a party, yeah. you know, totally. you have a party because the music is being heard yeah. as it should be heard. Yeah. 
No, I totally agree with that. And I, I think it gets lost more and more because clubs become more and more commercialized and it's more about yeah. making money. So it's it's businessmen opening clubs rather than right. rather than DJs and producers or sound sound system freaks and things like that. Um, right. Whenever a DJ has opened a room, I mean, you, you can tell, you know, yeah. going back to Nicholas Matar with, you know, with Cielo and yeah. with Output, it's like, okay, you know, like he knows what it takes yeah, you know, to, totally. um, to deliver I'll, that experience. I, I never went to Cielo um, and I always like get annoyed with myself for not going because I had the opportunity to go, to go multiple times and just never went. Um, cool room very cool room yeah. yeah but output was was something else i remember i played the panther room which is personally my favorite room in in the venue yeah um, but that club was special as well yeah it was special what's what's your um what's your favorite room to play in in america now or in the world oh okay um it was stereo montreal yeah <laughs> you know and before the pandemic, um, that room, um, I think was a blueprint of the original sound factory okay. originally built, um, uh, from Angel Morris. Mm. Uh, and you know, he was a Brooklyn boy like myself, yeah. you know, inspired by, you know, uh, early New York sound factory yeah. sound system. And he, he literally built the sound factory in, uh, Montreal, you know, and th- he created the magic that we had here in New York. Yeah, there, you know, that room. Is, if you know what stereo is about and know how to play that room, it becomes your favorite room. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. it's just the audience is magical. There's still magic in that room to this mm. day. Obviously, it's been closed for two years, but um even my last gig, which is literally the week before everything shut down. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, what a weird way to go into <laughs> this pandemic, like playing stereo as my last gig yeah. and having that like, you know, memory. But I always say stereo changed me as a DJ. Yeah. You know, like yeah. just that having that sound system um, is such a tool, mm. you know, and it becomes such a part of, of what you're doing. And you're not just playing a track, you're fucking playing a track. You yeah. know, you're really, you know, accenting and, you know, like you want to get a, a rise out of the audience when the audience knows what the room is about. Mm. You could easily get a rise out of them, you know, playing with the sound system. And it's just, um, it just really opened up um, playing music in a very different way for me. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then after playing in a room like that and then going to a really crappy room, you're just like, you, you feel like, what, my, my hands are tied behind my back. You, you know, none of these fucking records sound the way they're supposed yeah. to. You start, like, looking through your collection and be like, oh, I can't play this because they're not going to sound right. So you, mm. it changes you, as yeah. a, you know. It changes your set that night. It changes you as a DJ. You know, you, you don't end up playing the way you should play. Yeah. Now, I have no fucking more patience for clubs with bad sound systems i just Mm. don't i just it's like what's the point you know like why why are we all here you know we're here to to lose ourselves and like you know 
sound is just awful, you know. There's so many of them so, as yeah, well. There's so there's so like a snob, but <laughs> no, but you're you're the thing is is people forget that we're in the music business, right? And we're in the music industry, and we don't we're in the business because we uh, we're lucky enough that we earn money from it, but we're in it because we absolutely love music, and if you're not in it for that, then it, it's not your life. It, it it eventually fizzles out and it, you'll eventually be doing something else. Um, but yes. if you, if you actually love the the music, you want to hear everything you play or everything you make to the highest quality and you want right. everyone else to, to experience it to the highest of quality. Um, exactly. And there's nothing better than going to a venue and the sound and the lighting guy, girl, whoever it is, is like really passionate about how it sounds. Um, yeah, I, yeah. And like just the, the tech, like turning up to a club and the tech being all correct and people, the, the crew, knowing who you are and what you're about to play. And if they don't know who you are, then afterwards they know who you are and they will come up to you because they, they're they working in the industry because they love the music. They're not working in the industry to make a shit ton of money. They're, they're in it to to enjoy it, if you know what I mean. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. They're creatively, you know, adding their layer into what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. totally. And that go, for me, that goes down to the, even like the security guards. Like my my goal in pretty much every set is to make sure that the security guards have the best time. And it's kind of a bit, sounds a bit stupid, but it's like, it matters. The, 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 the the security guards, the bar staff, like everyone that's working the club has to have a nice time. And if you're the one DJ that comes in and makes sure that they have the best time, you can guarantee that everybody that's paid to see you is having the best time and no one no one wants to be in a club and hate it for 12 hours and but you just mentioned something that is really super important the moment they're walking through that entrance Mm. you know what that experience was for them could have you know, an impact on how they feel once they get into the room. Yeah. If they were just raped by some security guard, you know, searching them for yeah. whatever reason, and there was some bad energy thrown at them through some, you know, security guard that was just, you know, on steroids, it just changes their experience, totally. you know, like they're just like, they're never going to get out of that head and mm. be in the room and be like, oh man, you know, like, this fucking place sucks. Yeah, there's there's something about, I, I think that's the thing if I, if I had my own club um which i've nearly done before i i and i i talked to myself i nearly yeah in bristol i quit music i say i quit yeah i quit producing and djing for like six months and i had a venue and we were about to open it it was about to kind of go um and then the landlord asked for an extra like twenty thousand a year which at that time was a lot um for what they were asking and we were like this is just doesn't feel right when we're like a month out from opening and now they're changing it. I was like, this, there's something telling me not to do this. So we didn't do it. But for me, the key thing is creating, creating an environment that everyone, when everyone goes there, they're having the best possible time from start to finish, whether they've had to wait at the front 
for half an hour to get in, that half an hour of them waiting has been an enjoyable experience. And yeah. I think when clubs do that, and there's not many clubs that do that nowadays um, from what I experience, but when they do, you, you really feel the difference. Yeah, yeah. So it's very important. Not easy to do. <laughs> it's really not. It's yeah. really not, especially when yeah. you're dealing with the general public as well. Yeah. The general public, yeah. they're, they're hard, hard cookies to kind of please, if you know what I mean, and especially when they're spending good <laughs> money to go and see you. They, they want everything straight away. Yeah. Did, did you yeah. ever, did you ever like do anything outside of music during, did you like do any other businesses or do anything like that? No, no, I can't say that I have. I mean, my wife and I, over the years, we've always, um, uh, been very much involved in the real estate market. And yeah. I feel like that was always like a side thing for me, mm. but still something that I was, um, enjoying. Yeah. Um, my wife's an interior designer, Amazing. <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, she became an interior designer <clears throat> through all of the homes that we were like buying and building for ourselves. Yeah. And, um, and it's sort of, um, unknowingly became this business for us, you okay. know, like, but it was more at a personal need. Mm. Like, you know, we, we bought our first apartment. It was like a, a one bedroom. Then we wanted a two bedroom. Then we wanted a two bedroom with a view. Yeah. And we were on this, I call, I call us serial movers. <laughs> <laughs> we were on this like crazy cycle of every two, three years, you know, selling and buying a new place. Yeah. And um, through that, you know, we were just like, Oh, wow. We're, we're pretty good at this. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a personal need, you know, we were yeah. building these incredible homes and, um, and it was exciting. And that was something I really enjoyed. Huge fucking distraction. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, I got to the point where, uh, I was just like, Whoa, okay, this is, this is not good for me. It's not good for my career. Mm. Um, over, over the last, uh, couple uh, projects that we did. One was this townhouse that I'm in now, massive, uh, renovation. And it almost killed me. It was just like, just way bigger than I had expected <laughs> and really pulled me out of, you know, all of my creative, uh, you know, <laughs> um, things that I was doing. I, yeah. I couldn't focus on anything else because it just demanded that sort of attention. And, uh, and I just, I was like, okay, whoa, that, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. I need I need to like refocus um, my energy back in the studio. Mm. And over the last couple of years, obviously for reasons we all know, you know, it, it's, um, it's been a little bit of a, you know, not a little bit of a distraction. It's been a major distraction. Yeah. yeah. Trying to get back in there and, and, you know, cause you know yourself, like the magic doesn't happen. And unless you're in there consistently, mm. you know, until you find your way until you nail that, like that groove that like, ah, I know I can, I, can I know I it. can, you know, yeah. structure yeah. this and finish this track, you know? So yeah. that takes, you know, being in there uh, on a consistent, you know, level. Yeah. Yeah. And, it takes and time. I wasn't doing that. I was so pulled away from it all. So mm. I, I said to my wife, okay, babe, you're on your own (laughs) you do it have fun (laughs) um but i'm going back to work (laughs) yeah i think i but i also think sometimes having something to take you out of it can be really important to kind of bring you back in um 
for me, like COVID, during COVID, I wrote a shit ton. And then in the last six months, I guess, four months, no, most of this year, to be fair, I haven't written hardly anything. Right. And yeah, we have those moments, you know. Yeah, it's, okay. it's the first time in my career that I've I've not been writing every single day of my of my life for the but last. You've also, been really doing your thing, touring. I mean, I, I you know I've noticed in, yeah. in a way like your yeah your career is is at such a really like great level at, at this point. You know? Thank so you, man. I yeah. guess what you did during the pandemic really. <laughs> You know, really helped <laughs> paid off it's okay you know yeah. enjoy this moment you know you're, you're you're gonna be inspired and you know find that time again for yourself yeah for me i don't know about you but for me it's that it's also I, i'm not it would be interesting to see your thoughts on on what music is coming out at this moment in time but for me it's like i'm trying to i i'm trying to write stuff when i do go and write i'm trying to write stuff that is and it sounds very cliche but it's something that's gonna last a long time and it's not what what, what i feel a lot of the industry is at this moment in time where you release your record and two weeks later it's forgotten about yeah. and it's not necessarily forgotten about by our peers or in clubs but streaming record sales it's kind of record labels right. it's like onto the next record rather than it's just so much of it coming out yeah. that it's on to the next thing it's it sort of become so disposable in, in, in a sense you know? yeah no, but you're, you're spot on about what you're saying and that's we put this added pressure by thinking in that way you know yeah. like i want to come up with this tune that has longevity like fucking lot of pressure it's to put on yourself when you <laughs> <be creative. laughs> if you go in there with that intention you know it's just yeah i think rather all, than go in there and just you know load some cool synth and see where it goes you know it's, yeah it's a different approach yeah i've 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 stopped right. i've stopped doing that where i'm just like i've stopped just going in and jamming which is fine because i i got sometimes get to the point where i'm like this i'm just I'm just right. I can write a club record. If you know what I mean? I know that I can write a club record. I'm not worried about right, right. like, I need to push myself. And I think having to push yourself and kind of being nervous to go in the studio helps me personally. Like I get, right, right. I, I get worried about going into the studio and kind of like, just cause I want to perform. Um, and it's not like right. I'm trying to write hit records. It's not like I, it's not like I'm going into the studio and going, you, you must write a hit. We all know that's not good. But it's like, how can I go into the studio and do something different that is going to actually make people look at my, me as an artist, me as Will Clark right. as an artist differently? Um, right. What kind of process are you, are you kind of taking at this moment back? Now you're like off the like interior designing and renovating <laughs> like you're back um, in the studio what's the kind of vibe you're going for you know it's interesting because throughout the pandemic you know i was writing music some of it house some of it techno mm. some of it electronic you know i was just all over the fucking place you yeah know? and i have all these projects that some of them close to finish some mm. of them you know just ideas um the really, I, I really didn't have any sort of process. I was just trying to like be in there in a consistent, consistent way. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that was my struggle, you know, but obviously the pandemic lent itself, mm. but um, we were like held up 
at my summer home um, for the last 18 months, and I don't have a recording studio there. So, wow. yeah, which is kind of crazy to think, you know, that I, I've had the one home that we've never sold. We've had it for 12, almost 12 years that <laughs> <laughs> I never built the fucking recording studio there, which now that we're talking about it, I'm in the process okay. of building yeah. a room there as well. So I'll have my Brooklyn room and I'll have my a proper room there mm-hmm. as well. But going back to what you were saying, just like I'm, I've been sort of like loading up, um, catching back up, you know, on all new plugins and software and synths and just to like be able to turn something on and find inspiration and, mm. in, 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 you know, something that I like randomly come across, you yeah. know, whether it be just a cool sound that leads me into a direction. That's sort of how I've been going in there. You know, like that's, it's worked for me in the past and yeah. that's, I'm going to try that. Just enjoy <laughs> I it, just man. need to keep my butt in the studio. And that's, that's been the challenge for me. Yeah. I, you know, and obviously you know, I'm sure even for yourself, like touring, yeah. um, you know, it, it sort of, you know, it pulls you out mm. in a sense. And then you have all of other life shit, you know, you know, coming home, having a kid, you know, my wife and yeah, yeah I had fucking crazy year. Um, you know, I got, I caught COVID in February. Yeah and cancer in, in May. <laughs> yeah, that's not, a, that's not a lucky year, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> There's an extra fuck in there. You know? <laughs> uh, is, is all the cancer good now? I'm good, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm, good. I'm 100% good. We, good. we caught it super early. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, my doctors were, were amazing. And like, you know, they got me in there and got it out. I didn't have to go through any... Uh, radiation or chemo um i got lucky i got really lucky it's a fucker that isn't it it's it's a fucker even now they're talking about it and when i think about it even saying wow i had cancer like i just i never even imagined something like that but i mean it's it's life that's the shit you know that i guess when you get to a certain age or even not that there's no there's no age that you know it doesn't matter um yeah yeah, just shit that happens. You know? I, I think that's so the that, thing is that, is like it's kind of that thing. It, have you had things throughout your career? I guess getting married, having having kids, like you have all these kind of life things that your career still has to kind of go around, um, and certain things become your priorities and things like that. How did you find like having building a family? whilst also doing the music industry because i've 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 got friends that have the the minute they had a kid either like was like yeah i'm not really into it anymore and then i've had other friends that are like no it's actually helped them because they're like even more focused yes Hmm. that's how i felt you know having it, it it kept me grounded um, and my wife was an integral part of, of my career all the way through, you mm. know, but anytime I was, you know, thinking about making a change or, you know, a just, you know, really important decision for my career, you know, I had her there to like, mm. you know, talk to and, and, and which was, yeah, a, a big part of, uh, how I moved forward, yeah. having that, that, you know, that family to come home to, um, because what we do is fucking crazy. It's it's insane. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, you're you're flying all over the world. You're you're 
not sleeping, you're not eating well, you're, mm-hmm. you know, it's like your, your senses are just like so thrown off. Yeah. I, I felt like I needed that. I needed to come home to my family. Mm-hmm. It, it really helped me, you know, like, like just dial back into like, you know, a clear head. Yeah. There, there's a way to manage both. There, there certainly is. You know, right. man, there are many guys that are doing yeah. it, and um, it really, I, I, for me, it helped me for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was something that uh, kept me focused. Yeah, I can imagine it being very grounding to a certain extent as well, because yeah. for me, like I don't have kids, I don't have a partner, but I, it, when I'm in the UK, which I'm, I am at the moment, um, I have like a place right next door to my parents and. I get to see them and my brothers and sisters and stuff, but it's there's something about coming home, which is very grounding for me as well. Where you can like, I live in a tiny village. Like you can walk down the street and guarantee you know somebody, um, and it's like you can be playing in front of twenty thousand people on the weekend, and then you come home and you're like, I'm home now. Like you're you're just yeah. you're you're nobody when you're at home. Yeah. If that makes sense exactly. and. It yeah. it makes the 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 ego it tames the ego for me. Yeah. It, it's it, humbling. Yeah, <laughs> it brings it brings it back down, and it does. I think it's super important. I, it I, is important. I couldn't imagine being in a life where it's just around who you are as as your career. Um, yeah, I think at some point you will, if you're just living in that way and not aware of the need to like, you know, like, like pull out a little bit and mm. you'll crash and burn at yeah. some point. You can, you know, there's only so, so much of it, you, you know, you could experience. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's I totally my opinion. Agree. No, I totally agree. <laughs> um, dude, this chat has been amazing. Um, Likewise, man. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for being on. It's, it's been, been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me as well, man. And respect to you because like, you know, guys like yourself now I'm listening and I'm like, your last tune, man. Yeah, like, you know, playing it in all my sets. Thank and, you, like, man. It's been inspiring me, you know, like. Thank you. I'm, well, I'm, if, if when I'm in New York, I'd love to I'd love to get together. Let's go for dinner. Yeah, um, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's write some it. music. Let's, let's, that, let's, let's do that. Um, before we go, how can people follow you? How can people check out your music and all of that? I mean, I have a SoundCloud. I haven't shown it much love, but um, yeah. Follow me on my Instagram, the yeah. Calderon. Uh, I'm not a, a big social media person. I hate being tethered to my phone, although I know it's fucking necessary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, yeah, I, it's not something I'm good at. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I realize it's important. Uh, I got to step up my social media game. It's all good, man. You're, do, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing your thing. Um, dude, keep safe uh, and hopefully see you soon. Yes, likewise, man. Peace, man. Thank you, dude. Bye. And that is a wrap. Hope you enjoyed it. Keep safe. See you next time.